welcome back to another episode. I'm pretty pumped about this one because I am basing it off this essay that I wrote for one of my final papers um, for this past semester for my cinema class, um, Sexual Representation in Cinema, and so it's based on a particular movie, but I wanted to talk kind of broadly about this subject because it's something I've kind of played with before in other episodes, um, but I think what's valuable about the way that I wrote it in this paper um, is that because it's so centered on one particular film, I feel like I get very specific with what exactly I mean when I connect these ideas together. And if you can't tell with the title already, um, these ideas I'm going to be talking about have to do with queerness and horror and this idea of the monster. And I'm specifically going to be talking about lesbianism and vampirism and how they intersect, why they've been kind of co-constituted with one another, um, and through one another, and we're gonna delve into some cool queer horror history. So hopefully this is exciting to you. It's super exciting to me because I think I've made this clear before, but I love horror movies. I'm a big horror fan and also a big queer fan. <laughs> um, and so I really find it fascinating studying the history between the queer archetype and the monstrous monstrous archetype and how they intersect and how they've been constructed with and through one another and what the different archetypes like the lesbian and the trans woman and the bisexual and anyway all of these all of these different archetypes how they come to play in horror so i'm going to be talking about that today um it's going to get a little theoretical at some points because i'm pulling directly from this paper that i wrote but for the most part, I'm going to try and make these ideas as digestible as I can, and hopefully we have a little fun. So I first wanted to start by just talking a little bit about the cinematic history of the other in the horror genre. And when I say other, I mean someone that is seen as intrinsically different from the normal, from the healthy and so the other is someone who's abnormal, who's alien, who's unhealthy, who's sick, who's disabled, who's different from the normative social subject. And the way that this other person, this other subject is constructed is through this dichotomy between the normal and the monstrous. And that dichotomy itself, if we look back through history and how that's been measured based on social norms is very demonstrative of social anxieties pertinent to the time of any particular moment. So this othered subject becomes the villain, the thing to be afraid of, the thing to protect yourself from, to protect the children from. So this characterization of the villain in horror movies tells us what discourses any particular film might be engaging with or reproducing or at times subverting. It gives us information about what we're supposed to fear, what we're trying to protect, defend, and keep normal by casting out the abnormal. The idea of the monster is always articulated within the scope of deviance. So inappropriate gender, hypersexuality, queerness, Jewishness, poverty, disabledness. It's this fear of contagion 
of fear of becoming the other that shows us how movies and how the horror genre specifically engages with these different evolving discourses about who we're supposed to fear, who we're supposed to ostracize, who we're supposed to hide from. I wanted to like really articulate this idea of the monstrous other in a quote from Adam Lowenstein from his book Horror Film and Otherness, which I haven't actually read the whole book, so I can't necessarily recommend it, but I've read little bits and pieces here and there, um, and I thought this quote just really summed up this idea really well. The genre captures ongoing metamorphoses across normal self and monstrous other. This transformative otherness confronts viewers with the other's experience and challenges us to recognize that we are all vulnerable to becoming or being seen as the other. Instead of settling into comforting certainties regarding monstrosity and normality, horror exposes the ongoing struggle to acknowledge self and other as fundamentally intertwined. I want to talk about this idea of the other in the context of cinematic discourses from a Western perspective, the necessity to have an other is, I think, so central to how we understand our culture as a whole. There always needs to be an other to compare against, to measure oneself in relation to in the Western world. Other being someone who doesn't fit into norms or expectations or desires of a society. The self is understood as something from within and then the other is like an external force that comes from a particular community from media from norms and there's this weird boundary between the self and the other that gets co-constituted with all of these other forces trying to integrate these ideas of what is alien what is monstrous and what is healthy what is normal And those processes of self and other constitution inform us how we're supposed to understand ourselves as selves and others as subjects to be cast in a particular light under the guise of social protection. But what this quote really interestingly brings up, which has also been really central to a lot of my studies in sexuality and the history of creating the other in the context of queer subjectification, there is always the other within the self. It's not possible to separate the other from the self because we all have the monster or the abject within us. The other demonstrates the relationship between ourselves and what we see as monstrous. So our personal subjectivity is always co-composed of otherness. If you're interested in these ideas that I'm talking about, and I'm literally just scratching the surface here, but I'm pulling a lot from the works of Nikki Sullivan, who is a really interesting and amazing author and lecturer. A lot of her work revolves around body modification and sexuality and plays with these really cool ideas of transness and gender and the strangeness of being when it's related to technology and body modification and embodiment and is just like a really cool theorist. So if you're a nerd for that kind of thing like I am, I would totally recommend looking her up and checking out some of her books or articles. You can probably access some of them for free online. Um, But anyway, 
I think her work is very relevant to this conversation, but I also don't want to get too sidetracked. And so now that we've kind of established an idea of the other conceptually, we can start thinking about it in the context of film and cinema. The process of coding or codedness in film is really interesting. I'm not a film major, so I can't give you, you know, like a like an in-depth analysis of the way that cinema codes gender and sexuality and race and identity, but I do know a little bit just from the classes that I've taken in the film department. So basically, just like very simply, cinema uses codes of these like facets of identity to create figures that are meant to represent a real life figure of the social world that we're living in. And the way that films engage with these, I guess, coded figures, or sometimes not so coded, sometimes very explicit, um, is through imagery that may evoke a certain feeling about a particular subject and really engages with stereotypes of what certain people are supposedly like. And so it plays with a lot of stereotypes of race and of religion and gender and sexuality and culture and uses these figurations to further their particular narrative. And so if we're talking in the horror genre about creating this idea of the monster, this monster is created within the scope of social otherness. So people deemed to be dangerous, contagious, abnormal, immoral. And this shifts over and across time depending on what moment we're living in and what discourses are really central to the general social reality that we're all existing in. Historically, characterizations of the monster or the predator have long been coded through queer stereotypes, often signaling the predatory figure as someone occupying a queer identity or embodiment of some kind. And there are also many other monsters that have come from ancient folklore that are pretty infamously connected to anti-Semitic characterizations of the monster or the other, from figures like Dracula to the witch to the werewolf. There is a huge range of anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jewish people that date back so far and are still being reproduced in modern representations of monsters, not only in the horror genre, but just in film more generally. So that just goes once again to demonstrate that the stereotypes and the characterizations we see in film are directly reflective of and reproduce these often very dangerous and very harmful stereotypes of people. So what all of this, I guess, is saying here is just that the horror genre has been central to processes of othering in its articulation of the trope of the monster through this cinematic codedness of gender, sexuality, race, predation that signals a certain queer framing of the monster figure, which constitutes this subject, this other, within the scope of anti-queer discourse that teaches audiences to fear and ostracize and ultimately kill this monster because it's dangerous and we can't have it in our normal, happy social world. So for this episode, I'm gonna be specifically focusing on the monstrous other within the context of the lesbian vampire. So I'm gonna give you a little rundown of the lesbian vampire and how she came to be. So, this is pulling a lot from Bonnie Zimmerman, who published this article in 1981, 
um, that really focuses on the connection between the lesbian and the vampire in response to the 1971 erotic horror film Daughters of Darkness, directed by Harry Kummel. And so that's the film that I was writing about in my paper. Um, highly recommend it. It's super campy, super fun, super ridiculous, but also visually stunning. And so if you're looking for just kind of like a silly, but also historically interesting and lesbian horror movie, I recommend it. So what Bonnie Zimmerman writes about in her article, she really explores the historical developments of conceptions of lesbianism within the context of the 60s and 70s feminist movement and a growing public awareness of female sexuality outside the borders of heteronormativity. And she talks about this male fear of woman bonding that could result in the permanent exclusion of men serving as a threat to male supremacy. And I think most of us have probably heard this argument that like men are scared that um, the existence of lesbians or just like queer people in general is going to make every woman lesbian or every person queer and then they will become obsolete and unnecessary and so this is the idea that she's really exploring in this article and that um there's a parallel between this feminist movement in the 70s which resulted in a challenging of male power and an increase in women connecting with one another through shared experiences and also the rise of the lesbian vampire film And she's saying that this connection is really indicative to the cultural fear of male obsolescence. So that is men becoming less and less central to society in structures and families and in the lives of women more generally. And she talks about this lesbian vampire film. She talks about a few different films, but mostly focuses on Daughters of Darkness um, and how these movies use a lot of the stereotypes attached to lesbianism, at least since the 19th century. So how, you know, lesbians are seductive and narcissistic and morbid um, and out to get the heterosexual woman and how that was really paralleled with ideas of vampires and how they're seductive and dangerous and bloodthirsty and out to get, you know, the beautiful young woman and turn her into a vampire. So Zimmerman really playfully ties these connections between lesbianism and vampirism in this discussion, and I wanted to read this little quote. Lesbianism, love between women, must be vampirism. Elements of violence, compulsion, hypnosis, paralysis, and the supernatural must be present. One woman must be a vampire, draining the life of the other woman, yet holding her in a bond stronger than the grave. So what she's doing here is she's really playing with this idea of the dangerous lesbian vampire woman who is going to steal the heterosexual woman from the heterosexual man, which plays into these ideas of the lesbian and the vampire as being very predatory and very dangerous and needing to be feared because otherwise all these women are going to get snatched from their man and we can't have that. Another really interesting quote from Zimmerman's article is, The myth of the lesbian vampire, however, carries in it the potentiality for a feminist revision of meaning. Sexual attraction between women can threaten the authority of a male-dominated society. The lesbian vampire film can lend itself to an even more extreme reading that in turning to each other, women triumph over and destroy men themselves. And so what she's getting at here is that the figuration of the lesbian vampire doesn't have to be this negative it doesn't have to be read as a negative figuration it can be reclaimed 
in this feminist revision of meaning, as she calls it, so that we can interpret and understand and relate to this figure as one that represents reclamation and liberation and empowerment and basically escaping male power by bonding with one another as women. Another interesting facet to this conversation that I talked about in my paper, I had a section devoted to the characterization of Elizabeth Bathory, who is the, I guess, like head vampirist, vampirist of Daughters of Darkness, um, who's based on a real woman from the 16th century who allegedly killed more than 600 women inside her like big castles. So according to legend, she believed that bathing in the virginal blood of these women would grant her eternal youth, which made her into this vampiric sort of figure. And in the movie, she's depicted as this like very glamorous, very seductive older woman who has a really interesting power relationship to the other vampire lesbian coded figure in the movie, which is a whole other thing to talk about. But the thing about her character is I I really interpreted her character as a trans woman. There's a lot of like suspicion around her character, which is framed by the way men in authority perceive her. So part of my reading of the film in my paper had to do with this suspicious characterization of the Countess with one of the central markers of her identity being that we, she was like very suspiciously beautiful and they felt like they had seen her before like years and years ago and she can't still be this young and beautiful. And so she's surveilled a lot by these men in power that are very suspicious of her and think that something shady is going on and she can't really be this beautiful woman. There has to be something else to it. So this element of surveillance, I think, really speaks to a sort of policing of sexuality and gender, which I think can really easily be read as related to the hyper-surveillance of trans women and trans feminine people. These positions of the men in the film who suspect her of being a danger to society, I think, represent a broader signal of male power and supremacist authority because each of them are in this designated position to monitor and manage and scrutinize the behaviors of those around them, especially those they see as not fitting into the norm, like this mysterious woman who's like super seductive and sexy and also a vampire. So yes, they do have a right to be suspicious of her, but for the purpose of, you know, artistic reading, um, I devoted part of my paper to reading her character as a representation of the queer trans woman. I wanted to read a quote directly from my paper just to sum this little section up. It is through this knotted dynamic of suspicion, surveillance, and ambiguity that the audience may come to understand the Countess's characterization as emulative to the othering of transness through the conflation of characterizations of the vampiric monster with the queer trans female subject. In this sense, the film seems to ironically engage with discourses of the suspicious trans woman as a subject to be surveilled, understood, and managed through the male gaze, which in this case is authoritatively performed by the hotel clerk and the policeman. So to contextualize these interpretations or reflections a little bit, the other focus of my paper, or I guess like the framework that I was analyzing the film through, um, was the study of camp in cinema. And so I was really looking at how the use of camp is an act of subversion of these stereotypes and these roles that these characters have been 
um, put into and made into like this very dramatic, almost comical, hyper representations of certain caricatures. And so to give a quick like Google definition of camp, um, it's defined as an aesthetic style and sensibility that regards something as appealing because of its bad taste and ironic value. For this paper, I cited Jack Babuschio, who wrote this article articulating the relationship between camp and queerness in the context of cinema. So he really describes camp as this gay sensibility, an expression of a gay sensibility, um, which he defines as a creative energy reflecting a consciousness that is different from the mainstream, which is sort of bolstered by the polarization of the normal and the abnormal, so straightness and queerness. And then out of this dichotomy that's created between the normal and the abnormal, um, he's arguing that there comes to develop a set of understandings about the world and how to move through within and response to it. So for queer people, one such response to this world of dichotomized normalcy is camp. And so through the use of camp, he suggests that there might be um, like a neutralizing of moral indignation, as he calls it, as a way to advocate for the dissolution or the disappearance of hard and inflexible moral rules. So basically what that means is that through ironic and very playful uses of camp, queer subjects or queer cinema producers, they can use this aesthetic or this style of engaging with discourse to not only subvert norms, but like draw attention to the ways that certain identities are constructed to bolster particular narratives about what it means to be normal and abnormal. And in doing so, they can challenge these norms and conventions and expectations of reality concerned with producing immoral and moral subjects. And Babuski was really emphasizing here the inextricable link between art and life and performance and reality. And so when film engages with camp and when film uses camp, as this sort of like subversion tactic. It's a reflection of real life discourses that are talking about what makes a moral and immoral, healthy, unhealthy, normal and abnormal subject and providing this like ironic aesthetic commentary on that. In the context of this relationship between art and life and reality and performance, Babuschio says that the presence of the unseen beneath the surface is no less important than what one actually sees, which I think really sums up the essence of cinematic camp as a medium in and through which subversive realities of queerness and transness are formed. And so in this sense, this use of cinematic camp is a really playful process or can be a very playful process because it engages in this process of neutralizing morality and neutralizing these ideas of what we have about normal and abnormal, the monstrous and the healthy, and in doing so allows us to reflect on what assumptions we have and what expectations we have going into the film and going into whatever narrative is going on. So one of the things that I love about Daughters of Darkness and other campy movies like this is that it resituates this othered queer monster subject through campy representations of subjects that could be read as queer. So for example, the lesbian vampire or the trans vampire. 
and other characters that are really interesting, but I don't want to spoil too much, and so maybe I'll leave it there in terms of referencing my paper and what ideas I talk about, but just that the use of camp, it's so theatrical and playful and at times really absurd, which I think recalls the like really powerful potential that cinema has in constituting ideas of subjectivity, particularly as it relates to queerness. And so when we look at camp and how it's used to critique and subvert and engage with discourses that are often very anti-queer, we can resituate these subjects and resituate tropes of otherness that are so central to the horror genre in a way that can feel powerful and liberating from these assumptions about who queer people are in this like very playful and silly but really powerful way. So I think this particular film's engagement with camp, um, it immerses itself in this really interesting cinematic universe of reimagining the queer and the male and the female and the beyond gender subjects, which I think really effectively reconfigures the idea of the cinematic queer monster within this critical context of queer camp. So if you don't take anything away from this episode except my desire for you to watch Daughters of Darkness and come talk about it with me, then that's okay with me. Um, I think I would totally recommend it if you're looking for just like a fun kind of satirical, can also be intense. Um, There's like a few violent scenes that are not necessarily lovely to watch, but overall I think is a very interesting and very entertaining watch because it's so... It's one of those movies that's like so bad, it's good, but I didn't even think it was that bad. I don't know. I did love the storyline. I loved the characters. Um, The fashion is beautiful. The aesthetics are beautiful. So anyway, I'm going to leave that there. You can watch it at your own discretion um, and hopefully you'll enjoy it or at least like find some kind of meaning from it. Um, But I think I'm going to leave it there for today because I think I've said all that I can think of at the minute. Um, I'm not looking at any notes anymore and so my brain is just kind of in another little world. (laughs) So I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that it brought out some interesting thoughts for you and as always I always love to hear from you I love to connect and so you can reach out at the lily.pod on Instagram and in the meantime take care of yourself and I will talk to you soon bye